It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, June 17th, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz. The former commander-in-chief and current GOP frontrunner Donald Trump was indicted this week on 37 counts at the Miami Federal Courthouse. It's difficult to argue ignorance of the possession of the documents when you have so much evidence that the president did want to see these boxes and did have these boxes in his residence. I'm Jared Halpern. Secretary of State Antony Blinken goes to Beijing, hoping to thaw an icy relationship with China. They clearly would like there to be a productive sit-down between Xi Jinping and Biden during that trip. And so I think issue number one for Tony Blinken uh, will be to uh, set the groundwork for that. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Things are heating up down in Florida, and it's not just the blistering Miami summertime heat. Former President Donald Trump made his first appearance in a Miami federal courthouse as supporters and critics braved the scorching conditions waiting outside the courthouse in hopes of a glimpse of the former commander-in-chief. The first-ever indictment of a former president, which involves over 37 charges related to classified documents found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, has the country divided. Democrats like Majority Leader Chuck Schumer say President Trump isn't above the law. And there ought to be no political or ideological interference as the case moves forward. But some Republicans, like House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, believe there's plenty of bias, alleging that President Biden is weaponizing his Department of Justice against his own political rival, former President Trump. Obviously, as you talk about the substance, what you first can't get past is the fact that justice is not being carried out equally. A massive legal battle now cranks the heat up even more in South Florida. And former prosecutor for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Elliot Felig, says Trump's legal team has reason to sweat, but there's some factors that might cool things down. There have been prosecutions under the Espionage Act, and there's a values judgment to make by the Department of Justice as to whether it is worth or not worth prosecuting a former president. That being said, having read many indictments in my career, this is a strong indictment. This is a strong case. It's a tremendous contrast with the case in Manhattan. I was very critical of Alvin Bragg. That's my old office, the Manhattan DA's office. Although, thankfully, I didn't work for Alvin Bragg. I worked for one of his predecessors. But I was very critical of the Manhattan case. I think that the Manhattan case may not even survive a motion to dismiss. I think even if it survives a motion to dismiss, I don't think they even have a provable misdemeanor in Manhattan. But this is a marked contrast on many levels. It is a detailed indictment. It is uh, factually strong. And the building blocks of the case, the various witnesses and pieces of evidence, look like they will be very difficult to impeach. Right. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, we've heard from so many people in, in the legal profession, including those who are, are fierce critics of Donald Trump, including some of his actually political opponents like Asa Hutchinson, also a former prosecutor. Uh, when he did an interview with us after he declared, he said, you know, I wouldn't have tried that case talking about the Alvin Bragg case. But 
he's been pretty steadfast in, in saying that this is a fairly strong indictment, too, coming out and saying that he thinks Donald Trump should uh, st- get out of the race pretty much because of this indictment. And it seems like you agree where, where there is a lot of strong evidence there. You know, what is that evidence that makes this a, a strong case for Jack Smith to be pursuing? So as a prosecutor, you kind of look at every case as the building blocks or the components. You're, you're, you have this goal of getting evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And most cases have inherent vulnerabilities that as a prosecutor, you probably can't do anything about. So just to give you an example, you might have a case when I was doing street crimes, I had many cases where the eyewitnesses, the key eyewitnesses, sometimes the only eyewitnesses had tremendous vulnerabilities. For example, the key eyewitness had a criminal record. Right. Or the key eyewitness had, you know, very, very poor communication skills. And you just knew, wow, this it's going to be tough getting a jury to accept evidence beyond a reasonable doubt when this is my witness. And this person has so many vulnerabilities on cross-examination. So in this case, though, there are basically three building blocks of the case, and they're all going to be tough to impeach. The first building block is the testimony of Evan Corcoran, the president's former attorney. Talk about the contrast between the Manhattan case and the federal case. The Manhattan case, the key witness is Michael Cohen, as sleazy as they come, right? But Evan Corcoran is a very respected attorney. He's a former federal prosecutor. He's a Princeton University graduate. He worked closely with the president, so they're going to have a tough time arguing he has a political axe to grind. Evan Corcoran is the key eyewitness in this case. going to be very difficult for the president's lawyers to impeach Evan Corcoran. That's your first pillar. The next pillar of the case is the surveillance video from Mar-a-Lago. I don't know how they can attack that um, because it's surveillance video. I mean, I guess you could argue that that the video is somehow misleading or doctored, but good luck with that. And then the third building block or the third pillar of the case will be the federal agents who executed the search warrant. And again, they will be difficult to impeach. Federal agents are people who've survived uh, tough background checks. Often they're professional witnesses because they have to testify in many cases. So those are basically the three pillars of the prosecution case, and they all look pretty strong. And what would what would Trump's legal team do to kind of discredit some of that evidence? You know, we're talking about, you know, the key witness, but also some of that evidence you just mentioned. What's what's kind of the strategy for trying to discredit that or or bring down or try to convince a jury otherwise? It's going to be challenging. I could see a couple of things they might be able to do, though. They could argue that Evan Corcoran somehow did develop a bias or somehow has been influenced by the federal prosecutors. They might make a motion to keep out the conversations that took place at Bedminster. You'll recall in the indictment there are these two alleged taped conversations where the president, supposedly the former president, supposedly waved around classified documents. However, there are no charges based on what those documents were. In fact, they haven't ever been uh, admitted or I, I don't think they've ever been obtained by the government. So the government, uh, rather, the, the defense attorneys might make an argument that the Bedminster conversations are reflective of what we call uncharged crimes. They are indicative of behavior that is not actually part of the specific charges. And so you can bring a motion to bar evidence of uncharged crimes. I think that'll be a tough one, but it's certainly a motion that I would make if I were defending him. Um, But beyond that, you know, it's difficult to argue ignorance of the possession of the documents when you have so much evidence that the president did want to see these boxes and did have these boxes in his residence. I mean, they can argue that perhaps that it was not a knowing possession, that he simply hadn't gotten to those boxes. 
The problem is you have this affirmation that they signed, which says that they did a thorough search. And, and the evidence is that they did not search, that his lawyer, in fact, never got to see some 34 boxes that had been moved from a storage room prior to the lawyer conducting his search. And we did have um, Majority Leader Steve Scalise this week talk about sensationalizing evidence in this case. You know, he brought up how there's uh, been photos shown of the documents at the Mar-a-Lago home. But then he says that when you look closer at them, you know, their newspaper clippings, their personal documents. Is that a valid argument or is that completely separate? I I think that'll be fair uh, argument at trial. I don't know whether they're going to argue simply that the documents were mixed in. And so therefore, there wasn't a knowledge of their presence at Mar-a-Lago. Um, or they'll simply say that, you know, these pictures are taken out of context and we want to show other pictures. And they certainly can can argue that to the jury and try to mitigate the impact of those photographs. But I think Jack Smith purposely included those photographs in the indictment because he did want to telegraph to the world that he feels he has a strong case. And, and also, you know, another argument we hear from a lot of Republicans uh, and those who are defending Trump is there's there's oftentimes a pivot that goes on here where they they, they bring up uh, Joe Biden or President Biden's classified documents case that he has going on and, and, and kind of point to some of the different factors, you know, the, the documents in his garage, this, that and the other. Is, is it fair for them to pivot that way or is that not doing this any good? In the political arena, I think that makes perfect sense. And in the political arena, perhaps some of those punches will land. But in the courtroom, the jury will not hear one word about Hillary Clinton and her emails or Joe Biden and his classified documents, because in a trial, you cannot defend by saying, hey, look at that other person. He did worse. Look at that other person. She did worse. You just have to attack the evidence and argue that the evidence as to those specific crimes is not sufficient beyond a reasonable doubt. However, In this very unusual circumstance, you could say this is a case where the political world really clashes with the legal world. Because think about it. The president is going to be tried, if this goes to trial, in South Florida, where he already has a significant base of political support. If he can use the political platform to get people fired up about the charges, to feel that he's being unfairly targeted, if he can get them outraged about the charges within that pool of outraged people, some of them might end up being on his jury. So, you know, from a legal standpoint, it actually does make sense, even just from a legal standpoint, to use the political platform to stoke outrage about the case. So this is a much more of a home field advantage for Trump's legal team than, say, uh, Manhattan. Absolutely. And you you just do the math. You know, he carried Florida twice. He uh, almost carried uh, Dade County. He got close to a majority in Dade County. So it's almost inevitable that there will be people on the jury in Florida who voted for him. Um, That may not be the case in New York and the Manhattan jury pool. Manhattan voted 85 percent for Joe Biden. So it's possible that you will have a jury in Manhattan with one or zero Trump supporters. So we can expect uh, a lot of these uh, potential pool of jurors being asked about their political views, can't we? It's tricky. Judges generally don't like to have jurors asked about their political views. What they'll try to do to skate around that, though, and keep out people with the bias is the judge will ask or allow the lawyers to ask in a more circuitous way. Is there anything about your political views, your prior background, your political activism that would prevent you from being fair? That And, you know, you'd like to be able to ask, of course, you know, who did you vote for? Uh, I don't think the judge will allow that. Judges do have a lot of discretion 
in what you can and cannot ask jurors. But I think the judge in, in both courtrooms will require the lawyers to be more circumspect and won't allow them to ask about their voting habits or their political affiliations in a direct way. Yeah, let's kind of pivot here to talk about something we hear a lot on the Hill, and that is about the weaponization of the federal government or the argument that it's being weaponized against uh, former President Trump. Is that fair to be used as an argument or does that not apply? Look, I think there's ample evidence that there is a segment of the population, including a segment of people with prosecutorial powers who have targeted President Trump and uniquely targeted him in a way that prosecutors are not supposed to do. That's a valid argument. That being said, when he received a subpoena in May of 2022, it was well known that he had a target on his back. And so this current indictment is largely of his own making. When you know you have a target on your back and you get a subpoena, it would seem to me you should really tread carefully. So so a lot, you, you, do you feel a lot of this could have been avoided by Trump earlier down the road? Well, think of it this way. The president, former president returned 15 boxes of documents voluntarily in January of 2022. And those boxes contained nearly 200 classified documents that he had been retaining. And there are no criminal charges at all based on those documents. So to the extent that he retained documents and voluntarily returned them, there were no charges, right? The charges stem from what happened subsequent to his receiving the subpoena. And when you get a subpoena in this country, you, you really only have two choices. You either fully comply with the subpoena or you go to court and you bring what we call a motion to quash to oppose the subpoena. And the president, former president is well versed in fighting subpoenas. He's done it many times in the last seven years. So that would have been the wiser course if he really had a good faith belief that he was entitled to retain these documents, whether as personal property or under the Presidential Records Act, if that was his good faith belief, then the proper remedy was to go to court and fight the subpoena in court. And if if he had done that, he would not be facing charges in this case. And, and so with this, you know, we're talking about somebody who is the front runner for one of the two major political parties. And it, it could be very much he could very much be the nominee in 2024. But, you know, he could be doing all this while he's running for president. But he's also got to deal with his legal issues. And we uh, asked Andy McCarthy last week about this. And he think it's, thinks it's going to be a big problem on the campaign trail for former President Trump. Do you believe it's going to be a big problem for him in 2024 on the campaign trail? Not just the, the political aspect of this, but the fact that you have to deal with all these legal issues while you know, you're know you doing another full-time job, which is campaigning for president. Sure, I, I, I do think that'll be an issue. Judges uh, will yield to other uh, legal matters. So yes, the judge in New York will yield if there's a conflicting court date in Florida or conflicting hearings going on. They will yield for that. I do not expect judges to yield, though, for political campaign activities um, in the same way that, you know, they wouldn't yield for my job or your job if we had ongoing legal matters. And also, do you think this one will have any implications on on other potential indictments down the road, like the, the, the case in Georgia or some of the other January 6 investigations? Yeah, it, the, it'll create, firstly, legal conflicts and timing conflicts. I don't know if there will be an indictment coming from January 6th. If you forced me to bet, I would bet against it because it has been over two years. 
and he does have an out, I think, with regard to the January 6th potential indictment, because he did use that word peacefully when he spoke of marching on the Capitol. And that'll make a big difference. Uh, and with Atlanta, we'll have to wait and see. All right. So so what do you think is the next steps here? Kind of kind of give us an idea what the timeline could look like as we as we move, we move forward. Uh, New York, you know, got uh, got their indictment in first. So they will theoretically take precedent. Um, and also the potential for pretrial appeals is much greater in the documents case. So I could definitely foresee evidentiary matters arising in the documents case that have to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. So I think New York will go first in terms of deciding substantive issues. And I'm very curious if the New York case even makes it to trial. I think that there is a very sound basis to bring a pretrial motion to dismiss in New York. Uh, so so you, you think this spills way into 2024, right? Absolutely. Uh, the the evidentiary matters that will come up in the Florida case are largely unprecedented regarding classified documents. And uh, the president's lawyers will have a sound basis if they don't get the rulings their way to appeal those all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that takes a lot of time. And so there, there's a likelihood he could be sworn in as president while this is all going on. And I think there's this, this fascinating legal debate going on right now. If, if former President Trump became President Trump again, could he pardon himself? Where do you stand on that on that precedent? It's a completely untested legal theory. But when you read the pardon clause in the Constitution, there's no limitation placed on it. I mean, does, it does not say explicitly you can only use the pardon on others. So when I read you know, the text itself, I don't see a limitation that would prevent him from pardoning himself. And so we've covered a lot of ground here. Obviously, we talked about the pardon. We've talked about, uh, you know, what the defense has and how strong you think this indictment is from Jack Smith. But, you know, with considering all of, of former President Trump's legal issues right now, there are still a lot of Republicans who are, are backing him. And he's got a lot of support within the party. And he obviously has a very strong base. But if you were Republicans, would you advise them to, to allow President Trump to continue as the nominee? Or do you think it would be wise for them to nominate someone else at this point? Gosh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to the politicians. Um, but right now, it seems to be a one horse race in the Republican Party. He just he, he it's not just that he leads in the polls. It's that he dominates the oxygen. He dominates all the coverage. So uh, I think right now he, see, he appears to be on a glide path to the nomination. All right. And we will leave it at that. Elliot Felix, thank you so much. I know this is a very complicated topic that we're going over, but this was some really good information, and we thank you for that. Thank you for having me. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. China has been keeping a close watch on the U.S. Months after the Pentagon shut down a spy balloon that sailed across the continental U.S., the White House this week acknowledged the existence of a Chinese surveillance complex in Cuba. Despite a denial initially from National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, he did concede the presence of a spy base in Cuba that has been in existence since at least 2019. It's just the latest source of tension between the world's two largest economies and superpowers that require delicate diplomacy. 
That's the aim of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who spends this weekend in Beijing to meet with top CCP officials. He is the first American Secretary of State to visit China in five years. While diplomatic exchanges have continued, military-to-military talks have not, so renewing that relationship is also on the secretary's agenda. So is setting the groundwork potentially for a face-to-face, in-person meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. President Biden is planning on going to the APEC summit this fall in San Francisco for a full two days. Uh, They clearly would like there to be a productive sit down between Xi Jinping and Biden during that trip. Ian Bremmer is the president and founder of Eurasia Group, providing risk assessment and analysis on international affairs. I asked him about the stakes of Lincoln's trip and what the next several years look like in the U.S.-China competition. And so I think issue number one for Tony Blinken uh, will be to uh, set the groundwork for that, uh, as well as talk some of the issues that will matter the most for that conversation between the two principals who know each other very well uh, and generally get along reasonably well, certainly much better than the overall tenor of the relationship between the two administrations. Um, Secondly, uh, would be an effort to try to restart some of the direct high-level defense conversations that have been completely Mm -hmm. uh, stuck, ended, uh, starting with um, the uh, Pelosi visit to Taipei last year, uh, given that there have been significant near-miss accidents uh, in the Straits of Taiwan in the South China Sea, where the Chinese have acted very aggressively, uh, that is not an environment where you want to have an absence of military-to-military communication. So I think that would be a second thing they'd like to accomplish. And then just third would be talking through some of the areas where there can be uh, more substantive Uh, productive relations between the two countries, climate, baseline trade, uh, some investment relations that don't involve national security, sanctions, export controls, that kind of thing. I was surprised at the Blinken trip only for this reason, because, as you know, he was supposed to go a few months ago and then uh, abruptly delayed it because of the the spy balloon balloon. that was flying over the United States that the the White House says was from China. Um, Just this week, the White House has acknowledged that that China has set up this intelligence site, this spying center in Cuba. Why was that acknowledgement not enough for for Blinken to, again, put the brakes on any sort of direct engagement or or direct trip to to Beijing? Well, in fact, I'd go the other way around. Uh, Keep in mind that the Biden administration was aware of this surveillance balloon Uh, a couple of days before uh, it was known publicly, before it could be seen publicly. I mean, it was people taking photographs. It's hard to keep it secret at some point. Hard (laughs) to keep it secret when Montanans can see it over their house. Yeah, exactly. Um, But until it was made public, uh, Biden had every intention to maintain that Blinken trip to meet with Xi Jinping in Beijing. And it was only after the firestorm that came from the public awareness that they decided to cancel the trip and then eventually shoot the balloon down. Now, in this case, uh, I think the Biden administration uh, did not want this information on the Cuba surveillance post um, to disrupt the trip. 
Um, the timing of the story uh, is unfortunate in that in in terms of that uh, the, the news cycle. Uh, but let's keep in mind uh, that uh, the Biden administration says, and I, I have no reason to believe that this is false, um, that 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 surveillance uh, uh, system was in place and we knew it was in place since at least 2019. So in other words, it became public three years, four years later. Uh, but this is not actually news in terms of the U.S.-China relationship. And so it, it, in other words, if you're Biden you don't want to make a habit of of changing national security policy purely on the basis of what happens to be in the headlines that day. You'd, you'd rather it be consistent um, for the American public, irrespective of what's trending on Twitter. Uh, and I, I think that's what they're trying to manage. Of course, it's how, hard to do. It is. And, and how concerning should this spy center be? I don't I mean, I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, I mean, it's in America's backyard. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I mean, the Cubans are a sovereign nation and they have the right to accept money uh, and to develop security relations with whoever they want. Uh, I mean, Putin's the guy that says that you don't get to do that. That's why he ostensibly invaded Ukraine. Ukraine decided they wanted to join NATO. I mean, we're not going to say no. If Cuba decides that they want to have a security relationship with China, the Americans can engage in espionage. The Americans can try to disrupt it. Uh, but the Americans, we're not going to invade or annex Cuba because they decide they want to have a relationship, a security relationship with China. Uh, I mean, you could now you could make the argument, well, Cuba's not a democracy. And so therefore, their decision to make an alliance with China is not in the interest of the Cuban people. You could make that argument, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but, of course, you could also make that argument for the Saudis or the Emiratis or the Kuwaitis or the Bahrainis or the Qataris not actually reflecting popular will when they develop a U.S. relationship that's military alignment. So I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, again, as an American, clearly this is a problem for U.S. national security. I, I will say, of course, that America's military dominance in Asia both itself and its allies, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan, there's a hell of a lot more direct surveillance and listening going on of the Americans and allies on China than there is of the Chinese towards the United States. At the end of the day, that should make us more comfortable. I was going to that was going to sort of lead into that. Right. I mean, what has been left unsaid is that the United States certainly has some sort of clandestine intelligence gathering operation uh, directed at China. It would be naive to think otherwise. Right. And and I think what's important to understand here is that the United States is the dominant security power in the world. The U.S. outspends the next 10 countries combined on defense every year. Now, uh, Chinese expenses, labor costs input costs are lower, but still it's a massive imbalance. And most of the next 10 countries in terms of spending are aligned with the U.S., are buying American equipment, are integrated with U.S. defense systems. So, I mean, the Chinese are encircled from a security perspective in a way that the Americans, quite fortunately, are not. Now, uh, it is true that the Chinese don't like that. And that's why they push back in Taiwan and the South China Sea. It's also true 
that while China's economy is smaller than America's, China does increasingly dominate their corporate sector. They dominate their financial sector. They drive a lot of investment and commercial decisions, which give them political influence in a way that the United States does not. We have a bigger economy, um, but we don't tell our corporations, here's where you have to invest. And mm -hmm. so uh, the Americans and, and America's G7 allies increasingly see the Chinese as driving coercive economic policy in ways that undermine American interests. It's very interesting that the, you know, the, the way that the United States and China express power is actually very different. You know, we've seen China try and expand its influence, certainly in, in parts of South America and, and in parts of Africa, particularly in the infrastructure sphere, right? Um, is the United States kind of falling behind in, in that influence campaign, if you want to call it that? In that, exactly my point, that economically, the United States is never going to compete with China in driving state investment into developing countries. I mean, the Chinese are putting all of this money into sub-Saharan Africa, and the Chinese mm -hmm. government and state-owned enterprises are driving that. The United States doesn't have state-owned enterprises like that. So, I mean, Build Back Better World, which is Biden's mm -hmm. idea to compete with the Chinese Belt and Road, you're just going to lose at that. Now, American technology companies, especially those aligned with the military-industrial complex, might do an awful lot in many of those countries. So, I mean, the point is that you're not going to be as good as the thing that the Chinese are the best at. I mean, I know that Bo knows baseball, Bo knows football, right? America doesn't know everything equally well. And there are certain things America competes at very, very effectively. There are other things that they're less effective at. And, the, and the, that is certainly even more true for China. Let me talk about this uh, Blinken trip. Um, you say that this is trying to sort of pave a, a way for uh, President Biden and President Xi to get together in person, potentially uh, at the uh, summit in, in San Francisco. Are there going to have to be deliverables? In other words, is China going to have to meet some sort of ask from Blinken for that to happen? And if so, what would that ask be? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I, I mean, at this point, uh, both Biden and Xi Jinping in different ways have spoken about the need to have a floor under the U.S.-China relationship, that neither of us are interested in the relationship continuing to deteriorate in dangerous ways. You hear many American policy officials talk about de-risking as the new term of art, as opposed to decoupling. In other words, you want to promote more companies investing in the United States and in uh, the NAFTA, new NAFTA countries, Mexico and Canada, with American allies on semiconductors, South Korea, the Netherlands, Japan, with American friends on uh, the so-called Critical Minerals Club uh, in so that the Chinese don't dominate post-carbon energy development as we transition away from fossil fuels. Um, all of those things are happening. But at the same time, you do not want, given the interdependence of the U.S.-China relationship, for that trade relationship to suddenly crater. You, you know, the fact is that 
U.S. and China are trading more right now than at any point in history. Despite the challenges in the relationship, the Chinese still hold a lot of American treasuries. The Americans buy a lot of inexpensive goods from China. You're not going to stop doing that tomorrow. Both countries have an abiding continued interest to maintain that relationship and not allow the mistrust that we see from the Democrats and the Republicans together to suddenly break things. And that's what I think Biden wants to ensure with an ongoing personal engagement with Xi Jinping. Now, more can be done. Um, I mean, as we look ahead to the Ukrainian counteroffensive now underway um, in, uh, in their own territory to drive the Russians out, if that's successful, after that's completed, the United States would be more interested in talking about um, what a negotiations process would look like. And the Chinese might well be a component of that, just as they were in the Iranian nuclear deal and largely constructive with the United States and allies, because the Russians aren't going to sit down and talk if there's no one around the table to talk to the Russians. So, I mean, Xi Jinping could do that. There are other places that we could see uh, Biden and Xi Jinping having a constructive conversation. But I don't think that there are advanced deliverables required to get that meeting to happen. Let me finish with this, because it, it seems to me that both Biden and Xi uh, are, you know, they, they have to pay attention to their own internal politics, right? And, and you right. talked about Republicans and Democrats sort of having this bipartisan skepticism of uh, China. Um, you know, Xi certainly has. I know it's not a, a democracy in the way that, that we think about it, but he's got political pressures uh, on him as well domestically. Uh, how do those play in the two of them kind of bridging their gaps between each other? Because you said, you know, they're on friendly terms. They know each other. Um, does that weaken either of them politically back home? No, a little bit. And obviously more for Biden because the United States is a democracy um, and China's not. And Xi Jinping is essentially president for life. He's gotten rid of term limits and he's gotten rid of most people that aren't direct loyalists. And Biden still has to deal with an election process in 2024. And he's got a very narrow majority in the Senate and uh, he doesn't have one. Uh, the Republicans do in the House. So, of course, it's going to be harder for Biden to move the ball. Um, on this relationship, it is made easier by the fact that there is a strong alignment between Democrats and Republicans, generally speaking, on China, but harder in the sense that you don't want to politicize the relationship unnecessarily, right? Um, right? And it is important that when the Americans are trying to hit the Chinese, it's for strategically important reasons as opposed to for performative reasons. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you'll remember when Kevin McCarthy was thinking about making his trip to Taipei because Pelosi made her trip to Taipei. And then uh, President Tsai from Taiwan made it known to McCarthy, we don't want you to come here because we, we the Taiwanese, are going to take that hit on our shoulders. We're the ones that's go they're going to have to deal with the Chinese military expansion and the sanctions and the diplomatic freeze. And McCarthy heard that and decided to meet with her in California instead. And that was much more constructive. So yes, absolutely. If McCarthy had proceeded with that trip to Taipei, which by the way, you know, a lot of Republicans in his caucus were saying, what, don't look weak. You just go, you don't say no. 
but it it would have ended up undermining the U.S. position. And Biden, of course, has to deal with those so the same pressures. Let me uh, ask you about your uh, your te- every time I talk to you, I feel like I'm receiving a TED talk. But I know you have a new official one. That's kind uh, of you, man. You know, I appreciate that. The next global superpower isn't who you think. Um, we just spent a lot of time talking about China. Is does that mean China is not what we think it is? That's absolutely what it means. Um, and we have talked, we've kind of set up uh, a lot of what I, I wanted to get at with the TED Talk, which is that, you know, a lot of people talk about China as the next superpower, not the case at all. American military dominance is growing, if anything, because of NATO getting stronger, because of AUKUS and the Quad and all of the collective Western concerns about China on the national security side. So you've got that. On the economic side, it's not a dominant America. It's a multipolar world. The EU plays, the Chinese play, the American play. We talk about that. But what's interesting, of course, is the global order that is coming fastest right now is the digital order. And and this digital order is dominated by technology companies in the private sector, not by governments. We don't have strong regulations We don't have existing institutions to govern them, not in the United States and not globally. And so when you when you roll out a new algorithm, when you roll out a new technology platform, when you've got all this new explosive AI and driving a lot of productivity and growth, you also those rules are being set by the technology companies and the small number of tech founders that and tech CEOs that control them. And that's that's a very different way of thinking about the geopolitical order. And it's changing our world very quickly. That's really what the TED Talk's about. Well, that's something we're going to have to discuss, too, after we all listened uh, to the TED Talk. Ian Bremmer, always appreciate your insights, your analysis to help us better understand the world around us. Thank you so much. Let's, let's do it, man. Happy to. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Chad Pergram, the TV voice of this week's congressional baseball game and our senior Capitol Hill correspondent, recaps all the reaction to the indictment of former President Trump, new spending battles that are emerging, and the hearings on Capitol Hill making headlines. And NATO's Secretary General visited the White House as Ukraine's counteroffensive was launched. London correspondent Jonathan Savage reports on the strength of the NATO alliance and challenges ahead as membership grows. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.